What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey, friends, thanks for joining our podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to Patreon.com slash BP Show. Patreon.com slash BP Show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. I've been attacked. I've been attacked by Sean Hannity. You know what? I consider that a badge of honor. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? Here we are on Thursday, September 28th. Uh, good to be back with you. Um, and uh, we are. Uh, so uh, grateful to Alexi McCammon for sitting in yesterday. Uh, I know uh, you all liked her, and uh, it was good to have her here uh, for the uh, little time while I had to uh, run up to New York for a couple of uh, business meetings. And uh, um, then, But back with all of you with all the news of the day here. And there's a lot going on. Donald Trump <laughs> out in uh, Indiana yesterday trying to sell uh, the, some turkey of a tax plan. The problem is, uh, it's not tax reform. It's just tax cuts for the wealthy. And, of course, we don't know how much it will help Donald Trump because he won't release his uh, tax returns. Uh, but the idea, uh, th- don't worry too much about it. We'll talk about it. The idea that uh, uh, this Congress is going to be able to do anything on tax reform after they've had uh, eight years to do something about repealing Obamacare uh, and couldn't do it. Um, yeah, yeah, they're running out of time. They're running out of juice. Uh, they don't know how to govern in the first place. Great to see you today. Thanks so much for being with us. We're bringing you up to date on the news. Donald Trump also a little pissed off at uh, HHS Secretary Tom Price because his love because of his love of private planes. Yeah, Tom Tom Price is, I don't blame him. He's just trying to uh, keep up with Steve Mnuchin and Donald Trump uh, in cashing in on the Trump administration. So much to talk about. We want to hear from you. Send us your comments on Twitter about the show, at about the news of the day, or about the show, at BP Show. We'll jump right into it. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories for you on this Thursday morning. We begin with a new poll from HuffPost YouGov. They surveyed 1,000 people over the past couple of days, asking them about the NFL protests and Donald Trump's response to them. Of course, Donald Trump last Friday in Alabama referring to likely Colin Kaepernick and some of his mm-hmm. friends as son of a bitches. HuffPost YouGov poll finds that 57% of respondents disapprove of the way Trump has responded to the protest. Bill, I will tell you, I listen to a lot of sports radio myself. What was the number? 
57 percent yeah. disapprove yeah. of his response. I listen to a lot of sports radio myself. I will tell you that's pretty accurate. Uh, you know, you, you may have folks that call into these shows that are Republicans that say, you know, they're disrespecting the troops, which is false. That's not why they're protesting. But most of them all agree that Trump bungled this whole thing and just made it worse. Well, put it this way. Just look at the numbers. Okay. Yeah. A friend of mine said the other day, Trump is his own worst enemy. Right. So before this, there were maybe, um, be generous, six people who had sure, taken a handful. Knee. Yeah. A handful. Not even that many. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, now there are over 200. Right. Plus the owners. Right. Yeah. I mean- Ridiculous. Uh, the poll also finds that uh, 40, uh, 48% of respondents think it's inappropriate for NFL players to kneel in protest during the national anthem. So we still have a bit of a hurdle to get over there. Uh, some news uh, that you may have woken up to this morning. Hugh Hefner, who founded Playboy magazine in 1953 with $600 of his own money, died late Wednesday at the age of 91. Some folks will dismiss him as a relic of a sexist era, but you have to agree that he did sort of loosen up uh, Americans' views on sex and sexuality. Uh, in fact, Jimmy Carter made headlines back in 1976 for granting Playboy an interview during his campaign for president. Back in a t- 2013 interview with Esquire magazine, Hugh Hefner said the number of women he had slept with was over a thousand. I'm sure. Uh, let me just say, Hugh Hefner was a friend of mine. Uh, I was going to say. I mean, you were in we, California. I have to uh, imagine. In California, when I ran for office, I had two fundraisers at the Playboy Mansion hosted by. Hugh no, Hefner. really. I have been swimming in the Playboy pool, and I have been in the Playboy Grotto, uh, not with a lot of naked women. Uh, Did you take like six showers afterward? Because I don't know. No, but Hugh Hefner was a wonderful, very generous, very bright, very guy, and his property, his home, is magnificent. Radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, what a great day. It's a great day when you're attacked by Sean Hannity, which I was uh, last night, and uh, I still stand by what I said. We'll tell you all about it. Uh, yes, indeed. I consider that a, a badge of honor. Next to getting uh, a personal tweet. Attacking me by uh, Donald Trump being attacked by uh, Sean Hannity on Fox News is the next best thing. The night before, he had welcomed um, the sexual predator Bill O'Reilly back to the uh, alleged, uh, maybe I should say, sexual predator Bill O'Reilly back to Fox News. Uh, Well, last night, uh, it was my turn on the Sean Hannity show, Uh, not in person, but um, (laughs) attack over something that I said several years ago. Uh, by about the Star Spangled Banner and still stick to it. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It's the Bill Press Show, Thursday, September 28th. Great to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us and being part of the program as we tackle the big news stories of the day, uh, bring you up to date on all the latest, give you a chance to respond by sending your comments on Twitter at BP Show. So what we say, don't leave Twitter to Donald Trump. He doesn't have a monopoly on it. It belongs to you as well as to him. Uh, belonged to you before it belonged to him. Except for all those people that he blocked on Twitter. Oh, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yes. We're looking at you on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Great to see you today. 
Uh, looking at you on Free Speech TV as well. Welcome coast to coast and out in the Chicago area on the w, great WCPT and Indiana Talks in the Indianapolis area as well. So uh, you can't escape us. We don't want you to escape us. Good to have you with us coast to coast again with the news of the day. Where do we start? We start, you know, um, <laughs> let's start with uh, Tom Price. Tom Price. He is um, getting a little uh, unwelcome publicity to the Donald Trump administration, particularly to the president himself, because uh, Tom Price, you know, he looks at uh, Ivanka. She's still selling her line of jewelry and and uh, cosmetics and clothing all over the world and getting contracts in China and other places where she couldn't be before because her daddy now is president. Look at Donald Trump. He's still cashing in on his golf courses and his hotels and his towers is still making business deals all around the world. Uh, and look at Steve Mnuchin. Steve Mnuchin's out there. He gets married. He wants a corporate je- uh, government jet for his, uh, for his honeymoon. Uh, he takes a government jet. I mean, he wanted a government jet, yeah, for his honeymoon. He takes a government jet down to see the eclipse down at Fort Knox. And so Tom Price, and by the way, Steve Mnuchin's uh, new wife, um, tweeting out all the designers that she's wearing and how much each item of clothing costs uh, and th- saying this is, I'm just being, helping the American economy. Yeah, let them eat cake. Uh, is her response when anybody complained. So Tom Price takes a look at that and he says, hey, what the hell? If they can cash in, so can I. So Tom Price is out there using corporate jets, he, the HHS secretary, uh, basically anywhere he wants to go, uh, even though um, uh, under uh, President uh, Obama, when Kathleen uh, Sebelius, the HHS secretary, flew, she flew commercial. I mean, what the hell? Maybe she flew first class. I'm not even sure she flew, flew first class. I doubt that she did, frankly. Uh, but at any rate, there are a lot of commercial flights. Tom Price took 26, we know now, at least 26 corporate jets. He used them to go to uh, an Aspen Institute uh, conference out in Colorado. A lot of commercial traffic flights to Colorado every day. He used it to go down to Nashville to uh, see to have lunch with his son. Yeah, well, that's nice. Have lunch with your son. Uh-huh. Yeah. We taxpayers pay that corporate jet for him to fly down there. Uh, Tom Price, who used the corporate jet to go to St. Simon's Island uh, just for a little vacay. Uh, and Tom, To be fair, it's a beautiful island. My parents go there every year. Well, I bet they don't take a corporate jet. They do not. Okay. They drive. Uh, also, uh, Tom Price, using a corporate jet to fly from Dulles to Philadelphia, which is about 125 miles uh, yesterday, I took the train back from New York, uh, from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. is about an hour and a half. I mean, no big deal. By the way, he spent a lot more time than an hour and a half driving to Dulles, flying to Philadelphia, and then driving in from Philadelphia. No one likes flying out of Dulles. No. no one likes flying out of Dulles in D.C. No. no. So, I mean, the whole thing. Donald Trump, not too happy about it. He told reporters yesterday, uh, we're looking into this. I was looking into it, and I will look into it, and I will tell you personally, I'm not happy about it. Mm, No, not happy about it. I'll tell you another thing Donald Trump is not happy about. Apparently, 
He raised, we're, we're hearing now that he raised holy hell on Air Force One last week. Coming back from uh, Alabama, uh, he thought the crowd was too small. Uh, he, they didn't get enough people out to him for him in Huntsville, Alabama. He thought Luther Strange was too low-key, like Jeb Bush, low energy, Luther, low energy, Luther. He realized he'd been suckered into going down there and campaigning for a loser when, in fact, Donald Trump's heart was really with Roy Moore, uh, who's the, you know, the big racist homophobe uh, who is um, who is the Donald Trump of Alabama. Uh, and But yesterday, uh, gamely, Donald Trump telling reporters, well, Luther ran a great race. It's just that Roy or Ray or whatever he calls him, sometimes it's Ray, sometimes it's Roy. His name is Roy. Uh, he uh, ran a better race. Luther came a long way from the time I endorsed him, and he ran a good race, but Roy ran a really great race. Uh, yeah, there he is. And you know, we mentioned yesterday on the show, Donald Trump actually deleted three yes, tweets yes. from the day of the election saying, get out the vote for Luther Strange, and then at the end of the night tweeting, congratulations to Roy Moore. But it's it's almost as if his support for Luther Strange never happened. Yeah. Oh, no, he's trying to he's trying to erase that. And right. they're looking at the legality of the president of the United States deleting tweets, basically documents of public record. That's so a good question. See where that goes. Yeah. No. Uh, exactly. No. Uh, Donald Trump wants to wants everybody. He's been Roy Moore. He's been with Roy Moore from the beginning. But let me tell you, uh, this this election th- th- this is fraught with meaning. What happened uh, in Alabama? I know you talked about that with Alexi yesterday, but it certainly shows that Donald Trump zero coattails. I mean, Donald Trump uh, could not deliver. He did. He tweeted out yesterday and said, get out and vote in Alabama. Get out and vote. Get out and vote for Luther Strange. I mean, day before yesterday. And the people of Alabama just simply ignored him. Roy Moore won by over 10 points. Um, So Donald Trump, incumbent president, wildly popular, right, with his base, can't deliver his base for Luther Strange. It also, of course, shows that Mitch McConnell, uh, who's probably the most hated politician in the country today, can't deliver. He can't deliver crap on Capitol Hill, and he can't de- can't deliver votes in a red, 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 red state uh, because um, he's just the embodiment, if you will, of the establishment Republican Party that Donald Trump ran against. And again, the question is, why did Donald Trump agree to, with Mitch McConnell to go down there and stump for Luther Strange? But it also creates... Uh, the, I, I mean, I think it invites civil war among the, for the Republican Party. There is no doubt that, that Roy Moore's success, and most likely he will be the next senator from Alabama, uh, hopefully you know, there will be enough Alabamans who are shudder at that thought and will elect uh, the good Democrat Doug Jones. But if you look at the red, just the party registration, uh, Roy Moore's got the uh, upper hand. But certainly... He, that his success will invite other Republicans around the country who are crazy as he is to run for office and say, hell, if Roy Moore could win after being thrown out of the Supreme Court in Alabama twice, if Roy Moore could win as crazy as he is, then there's a chance for me. And I think you're going to see establishment Republicans around the country challenged by wild-ass Donald Trump-like outsiders uh, all around the country. And, of course, it further undermines any confidence that people had in the ability 
of, re, of the Republicans in the, the Senate, especially of Mitch McConnell himself, of getting in anything done. You know, they had their chance. They wanted control of the Senate. They wanted control of the House. They wanted control of the White House. They've been able to, they got it, and they haven't been able to do one damn thing. As I said yesterday on another program, uh, if you look at uh, what happened Tuesday, it was a nuclear bomb hitting the Republican Party. They lost the primary in Alabama. They pulled the plug on repeal Obamacare because they couldn't even get 50 freaking votes. And Bob Corker from Tennessee said, I'm so disgusted with this gang of Republicans today, I'm not going to run for re-election. Uh, they don't have enough time to get infrastructure done. They're not even talking about that. And they don't have enough time to get tax reform done. We'll talk about that in just a minute here um, because they don't have a bill. They don't have a plan. They have what they call a framework. And they don't have enough time the rest of the year to get that done. It's not going to happen, which means that Republicans, having won control of the Senate, the House, and the White House, think about this, their sole achievement, they're going to go into 2018, their sole achievement in 2017, Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. Now, that's bad enough, but that's all they accomplished with all that power. And you got to say, back to George W. Bush, in March, sworn in at the end of January, in March, he got those massive tax cuts for the wealthiest of Americans, which were a disaster. My point is, he was able to get something done. He knew how to govern. He knew what he was doing. Donald Trump doesn't, and neither does uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, on the Roy Moore thing yesterday, by the way, um, my we talked about this uh, last week. My interview, uh, now famous, on C-SPAN uh, with Roy Moore back in 2005, uh, has been resurrected all over the place. I saw it, uh, David Korn of Mother Jones uh, put out a column, a whole column about that interview. Uh, this is the interview where Roy Moore tells me that homosexuality should be illegal. So it was up in Mother Jones, the entire interview. I uh, heard from a friend of mine yesterday, I was moving around New York. I didn't have a chance to watch TV all day long. Uh, but apparently MSNBC, every show on MSNBC yesterday played a clip from that 2005 interview um, and I was long asleep, but my sister last night <laughs> texted me to tell me that Trevor Noah played the interview on The Daily Show last night. So Roy Moore, 2005, C-SPAN, Bill Press, lives. Here's where I ask him that question. I think it's a yes or no. Do you think that homosexual, homosexuality or homosexual conduct should be illegal today? That's a yes or no question. Homosexual conduct should be should be illegal. Yes. Should be illegal. Yes. yes. Ah, there he is. Okay. Uh, does that mean right that uh, those who are gay should um, be in jail? That means that what two consenting adults do behind the privacy of their bedroom, closed bedroom door, should be illegal activity. It is immoral. It is defined by the law as detestable. It was against the law in most states until the Supreme but, Court in Lawrence v. Texas said that it wasn't. Perhaps people weren't watching C-SPAN 2 back in 2005 for this particular interview, but that is the perfect distillation of Roy Moore's character. 
That's pretty much all you need to know about who Roy Moore is as a human being. And by the way, he has not changed one bit. No. He believed that then, he believed it before then, and he believes it today. And so here's what you can watch for. You know, this is the worst thing that could happen to the Republican Party. Because when he gets to Washington, that's going to be his agenda. It's going to be the cultural wars. The Republicans want to talk about the economy. They want to talk about jobs. They want to talk about helping the middle class. No, no, no. Roy Moore is going to change the agenda. Roy Moore's agenda is going to be anti-gay, anti-women, anti-black. He's an outright racist. He's going to be fighting prayer in schools all over again. I mean, all those old cultural war battles are going to come back front and center because Roy Moore is going to introduce legislation on every one of them, and he's going to drive Republicans crazy. He told a reporter on Tuesday, this past Tuesday, Election Day, from Vox, <clears throat> that he believes that there is Sharia law <laughs> in Indiana and Illinois, and he has no evidence of it. But, no, he believes it. So if Roy Moore, it's, it's the same thing with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. It could be completely false, but if it comes out of their mouths... Their base will believe them. That's a problem. It's a huge problem. This is a guy who publicly called for Keith Ellison to be removed from Congress because he's Muslim. Because he's a Muslim. No, he doesn't think there should be a member Muslim. Uh, By the way, on the media front, uh, two things. Uh, Jamie, so last night uh, here at the Hill Center, which is our wonderful community center just up the street from our studio, uh, I do a uh, program there, a monthly program called Talk of the Hill. Uh, Last night, my guest was... uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, the one and only. She was on fire last night. Um, that interview uh, was on carried on Facebook Facebook Live. Uh, and, Jamie, we want everybody to, to be able to watch that. It is up. How do people find it? We've tweeted out the link on our Twitter, at BP Show. We'll share it on Facebook as well, our own Facebook, and we'll tweet it out again today. But, you know, with any Facebook Live video, uh, you can go back and watch it, watch the the tape of it. They just archive it. So it's there. It exists. The Hill Center put it out on their Facebook page. Yeah. But if you want to find it easily, go to our Twitter at BP Show. Um, we've already had a lot of response to it. It uh, She was uh, really, as I say, on fire last night. She was at her best. Uh, great crowd. And um, you, will, uh, you will enjoy that uh, uh, that interview very, very much. Uh, on top of that, last night, uh, boy, it's a big day uh, in the media world yesterday. Um, for yours truly, Sean Hannity uh, went back and resurrected. God knows where he found this. But, of course, Hannity is all over uh, the Donald Trump meme here, which is trying to say that the attacks on the NFL players, the racist attacks on the NFL players, the anti-American, anti-constitutional attacks on people exercising their freedom of speech have nothing to do with racism. It's all about the flag and the national anthem, which it is not. So Sean Hannity goes back to 2012 right on this program where Peter Ogburn and I were talking about the national anthem, the star-spangled banner. Uh, Here is... Uh, uh, Hannity uh, introducing me. Oh, I wasn't on the show, but introducing the clip and talking about me. Former liberal CNN, MSNBC, Former. fake news host, Bill Press, <laughs> one of their employees, said this. Listen to this just a couple of years ago. <laughs> it was 2012. Uh, by the way, I'm not a former host. Here I am. <laughs> I'm still at it. I think the best part of that clip is news host. 
You're fake a fake host. news host. Fake news host. Congratulations. Uh, right. <laughs> it's a badge of honor from Sean Hannity. I, I, I wear it as a badge of honor. So um, here's just t- talk about taking this out of context. All right. Here's what I said. Yes. Okay. All right. It is a major crusade of mine, a major cause of mine, and that is to get rid of the Star-Spangled Banner. In the home of the brave, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I get I mean, that part yeah, of it. Are we the only ones who are brave on the planet? I mean, all the brave people live here. <laughs> I mean, it's just stupid, I think. I, I'm embarrassed every time. I'm embarrassed every time I hear it. <laughs> I'm embarrassed every time I hear it. Uh, Sean Hannity doesn't like that. I'm embarrassed every time I hear the national anthem. Wow. And he worked for CNN and NBC. Uh, yeah, you're damn right I did. Uh, so at any rate, uh, some, some of you may remember what I said at the time. And of course, Sean Hannity does not put the whole thing in context. What I said at the time, but I still say, is the Star Spangled Banner is a horrible song. It is a war anthem, and it's impossible to sing. And the reason I stand, I always do, by the way, very proudly and very politely, I stand every time they sing it at the ball games. The reason I do, because I'm always curious if they're going to remember the words. Because how many times does a person singing it forget the words, get them wrong? It's so silly. And it just doesn't reflect what this country is all about, in my opinion. So what I said at the time, and by the way, I remember CNN called me right away, and I did CNN right after my show uh, defending the same point, is let's replace the Star Spangled Banner with something people can sing and words that mean something. What I said was, let's replace the Star Spangled Banner I suggested with two songs. One would be God Bless America. I love God Bless America. Talk about something that gets my patriotism flowing. Land that I love, stand aside her and guide her. Kate Smith, bring her back. God Bless America. Or replace the Star Spangled Banner with America the Beautiful. I'm telling you, you cannot listen to Ray Charles sing God bless them. I mean, America the Beautiful. Without tearing up. Without just play Ray Charles on tape every time. You don't need to, Absol- don't no. need to pay a singer. Absolutely. Just have Ray Charles no. I mean, the video up there and so it's good. That is so powerful and so meaningful and so beautiful. Instead, we get... I mean, come on. Yeah, we can do better than that. That was my point, Sean Hannity. Not that you ever got my point. Not that you would ever uh, even, you know... Uh, open your mind and maybe think about it a little bit. And by the way, Sean Hannity, I'd like to see you sing the Star Spangled Banner. In fact, uh, <laughs> that's what I how I ended my. C- I remember how I ended my CNN interview that day when I forget who the host was was being critical of me for suggesting that. And I said, "Okay, prove it to me. Sing it for me. <laughs> I want to see if you can sing it. I want to see if you can." And of course, end of interview. Right. So. Whew. I'm telling you. All right. Now, uh, we got to say just a word. By the way, great lineup of guests today. Joel Berg is the CEO of Hunger Free America. Yes, there is poverty in this country. There is hunger in this country. There are millions of kids who go to bed hungry every night. We don't talk about it here uh, uh, that much in this country. 
uh, Joel Berg, keeping that issue alive. He joins us uh, in studio. Then we'll be joined by Jamie Harrison. Uh, remember him? He is former chair of the Democratic Party from South Carolina. He was candidate for Democratic National Chair, one of those who ran. Tom Perez, of course, won that election. Uh, he is now Jamie Harrison, uh, the associate chair of the DNC. He'll be here in the studio with us to talk about some big wins uh, that the Democrats did score on Tuesday, having gotten a lot of attention. Uh, and then uh, the one and only Congressman Al Green uh, from Texas, who has announced that he will bring to the floor of the House next week a vote on articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump. Al Green brings that crusade right here uh, to the uh, to the Bill Press show this morning. So uh, red, red, red hot today. Um, by the way, wasn't it? Wasn't it really? Uh, I, I, I mean, once in a while, if you listen to Donald Trump, you learn something. You know, I was astounded uh, to learn from Donald Trump that uh, Puerto Rico is an island. Did you know that? I, I, di- I didn't. No. And you know what? It's an island. And it's not only that, it's surrounded by water. Isn't that just just amazing? Yeah. Uh, th- that a little uh, bit of uh, information from Donald Trump is about as much as we learned from him yesterday uh, about tax reform. Yeah, you know, listen, I don't want to spend too much time talking about tax reform because there ain't no tax reform. They call it tax reform. All we've got is something was scratched out on a napkin. Uh, so Steve Mnuchin's been up on the Congress. Donald Trump's been out on the stump. He gave another speech in Indianapolis last night. They're not, there are no details at all about this tax reform. But here's what the the New York Times calls it. From what we've seen so far, uh, sums it up in in this phrase, a huge windfall for the wealthiest of Americans. And the truth of it is, if you look at what So what they outlined yesterday, we're not making this up, is they would cut the tax rate for the wealthiest of Americans and... They would raise the tax rate for the poorest of Americans. As Chuck Schumer said yesterday, what the hell kind of tax reform is this if you reward the wealthiest who don't pay their fair share of taxes today and then stick it to the lower end of the scale where people who are barely are living paycheck to paycheck? Here's Chuck Schumer. The top rate on the wealthiest comes down, and the bottom rate on working class families goes up. What kind of plan is this? And of course, Donald Trump yesterday out in Indianapolis says, well, the one thing you can count on is that this tax cut is not going to be good for me. Our framework includes our explicit commitment that tax reform will protect low-income and middle-income households, not the wealthy and well-connected. They can call me all they want. It's not going to help. I'm doing the right thing. And it's not good for me, believe me. Well, how do we know that? Because Donald Trump will not release his tax returns. We do not know that. He could be and probably is lying through his teeth. And by the way, 
uh, we do know from the one year, remember, there was one year that leaked. I think it was 2005, whatever, the New York Times got a hold of the copy of his tax return, one year of tax returns, three pages of it. And what we know from that is that most of the tax, by far, the great majority of the taxes that Donald Trump did pay in that one year, and by the way, it's a lot of money. I think it was like $25 million or something. But that most of that tax was what's called the alternative minimum tax, which is in place to make sure that the wealthiest people can, can't get away with paying no taxes at all. And most of the, uh, of Donald, from the one year that we've seen, part of one year of tax returns that we've seen, most of what Donald Trump did pay was paid under the alternative minimum tax. We do know that this plan that the GOP released yesterday, the outline of it, the framework of it, eliminates the alternative minimum tax so that people like Donald Trump may not have to pay any taxes at all. Tax reform, it is a joke. It is nothing but more tax cuts for the rich, which is what the Republicans, that's why they wanted to get control of Congress. Yes, let's talk about poverty and hungry, hunger in this country. Uh, Joel Berg, CEO of Hunger Free America, coming up next here on The Bill Press Show. It's an island sitting in the middle of an ocean, and it's a big ocean. It's a very big ocean. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Here we go now on a Thursday, Thursday, September 28. Welcome back, everybody. The Bill Press Show. Bill announced you from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., with all the news of the day brought to you today by the United uh, Food and Commercial Workers Union, the UFCW. Men and women of the UFCW. Uh, They're the ones that uh, greet us and serve us in the grocery stores and supermarkets across America. Uh, Make that shopping experience uh, uh, a pleasant one. And they greet you with a smile uh, under the leadership of President Mark Perrone. Check out their website at ufcw.org. Salute them. Thank them for the support uh, of the program. Uh, Those people going to those grocery stores, uh, fortunate enough, hopefully, have enough money to buy the groceries they need to feed their families. But not everybody is so fortunate, as Joel Berg has pointed out in many different ways. He joins us, CEO of Hunger Free America and author of this great book, America, We Need to Talk, a self-help book for the nation. Hi, Joel. Good to see you. Good to see you. I took a chartered plane from DuPont Circle to get here this morning, and I billed HHS. I hope that's okay. That, that <laughs> is okay. Uh, Tom Price would be proud of you. It was yes. a very long two miles, and my time's just too important to ride next to regular people on a train or something. I mean, can you believe it? You know, like uh, uh, getting on Amtrak the other morning, right? Before you know it, I, I take a quick nap. I'm in Philadelphia. Right? Tom work, Price ought to try it. I worked for two cabinet secretaries in the Clinton administration, <laughs> and overwhelmingly, they took a commercial air transport coach. Yeah, right. That's Or they, or for okay. five feet, like New York, you know, D.C. to Philadelphia, a train. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like everyday Americans who yes. they are uh, supposed to represent. Yes. So. 
Yeah. Should be that easy. But again, Tom Price is just really trying to keep up with Steve Mnuchin and Donald Trump and Ivanka and all the others who are getting rich out of this administration, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. And and this is really about an, an, an entitlement. And, and this directly relates to the themes of my book, that the elites rig society for their own benefit and, and shaft working class and, and poor people and that poor and middle class people are actually in it together. Are there... What what <laughs> I know the question answers itself, but is there hunger? Are there people going to bed hungry at night in the richest country on the planet? Yes, there are forty one million Americans, a few million people higher than before the recession that live in homes that can't afford enough food. That's more than the population of California and Maine combined. Now, people aren't starving in the streets, uh, and things are better than they were in 1907 when Frances Perkins, before she became a cabinet secretary, wrote her master's thesis on kids starving to death in, in New York City. And the reason they're better than they used to be is that we have a safety net. We have minimum wage laws, which just didn't exist. But yeah. we have the worst problem, even per capita, per capita, out of any Western industrialized nation. People choosing between food and medicine, people choosing between food and rent, people rationing food, and ironically, uh, people becoming heavier and obese because, oh, because they're, they can't afford ahead. healthier food. And, and hunger yeah. and obesity are flip sides with the same malnutrition coin. People don't understand that, right? You expect people who are hungry to be as thin as a rail or something. Right. And, and for decades, the <laughs> go right... To the, go to the boardwalk on Ocean City, Maryland, uh, right. and you'll see them. <clears throat> and for decades, the right has had a cottage industry of denying hunger and poverty in, in America, and they had all sorts of reasons why it wasn't happening. And now their their newest excuse is, well, people are, are heavy. And it, it, it sounds oh. right to regular people, but when you look into it, healthier food's more expensive than less healthy food. It's less likely to exist in low Low-income neighborhoods, it takes more time to prepare, and low-income people work in two or three jobs, including those lazy immigrants I just saw coming here who are driving taxis and, and renovating the building next door to your studio. Where do these people live? The everywhere, 41, the forty-one million. Everywhere in the country, and the greatest. None of them in red states, of course. <laughs> well, out of the states that voted for Donald Trump in the election, out of the top uh, ten states in the union that uh, rely on SNAP food stamps, uh, eight voted for Donald Trump, and there are now more hungry and poor people in suburbs than in inner oh, really? cities because Not... people can't afford to live in the city anymore. D.C. here, I, I lived here for 10 years. I'm back now for you know some meetings in this. It's so gentrified, people are forced to live in the suburbs. New York, oh, yeah. poor people yeah. are living in the suburbs. And the percentage of people who are hungry and poor in rural America is, is just the same level as it is in inner cities. So when Trump keeps equating inner cities with poverty, not only that, is that ignorant? No shock. That's race baiting because the implication is non-white people. When the largest number of people in America who are poor, the largest number of people who receive food stamps SNAP are white. Yeah, that people don't realize. That. I mean, that no question, stunning. people yeah. of color are disproportionately uh, right. low income, but the largest number of people in America who need help are, are white. So this debate among progressives, this good debate among Democrats of whether you know uh, people worry about the inner city or rural white areas is a ridiculous uh, debate, and we're actually falling into Trump's. Trap. Mm -hmm. Many of the problems are the same and many of the solutions are the same. More jobs, higher wages, things like guaranteed childcare and a serious safety net. Children, what percentage are kids? 
13 American, 13 million American children live in households that can't afford enough food. 13 million American children. Now, things like increases in school breakfast and summer meals mm -hmm. have helped, but there's no question we're the only industrialized Western country who would even contemplate letting our kids go hungry. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 tell me about the, the kids' breakfast. I mean, this is relatively new, isn't it? Yes. Was so it, the, the was not, it Obama or when did well, that start? Well, the, the National School Lunch Program started in the 1940s as a defense program. And, and starting, the school lunch program. School lunch program. And starting in the 60s, there were various experiments at the state and local level to have school breakfast, including, controversially, but it's factually true, the Black Panther Party did school breakfast. Mm -hmm. uh, in the late 60s, the federal government authorized the first school breakfast programs, but it's still pretty small. And only about half the kids in America who get <laughs> school lunch get school breakfast today. So hunger-free America. America and many other groups have been working to have in-classroom school breakfast, meaning kids show up in the classroom and they get breakfast there. It uh, saves their parents from having to bring them early. It saves the stigma of having to go to the special breakfast room to show you're poor. It dramatically increases breakfast and increases text test scores. To be schooled, you must be fueled. To be uh, well-fed, you must, yeah. to be well-read, you must be well-fed. Those are my two Dr. Seuss lines for today, but I, it's true. I think that, no, I think they're great. I like them both. So at one point, I was thinking, you know, I remember Bobby Kennedy, right? Poverty. He made that, that was a big, big focus of attention for him. I mean, he went to the South, he talked to people, he talked about... Um, even why don't we talk about poverty anymore? Are Americans just ashamed of it? Americans are ashamed of it, and the conservatives want to demonize low-income people and race bait around low-income people. But honestly, among most upper-middle-class white progressives, there is a fair amount of cluelessness and denial about I, this issue. I, I, I agree. Yeah. 40 or 50 years ago, most white progressives either survived the Depression personally or were sons and daughters of people who did. Today, they're two or three or four generations removed from any direct connection with poverty. And many progressives who understand that it, when it comes to gay rights or climate change or civil liberties, it must be the government role. When it comes to hunger or poverty, they actually adopt the right-wing frame of charity without having any clue that it's a right-wing frame. Now, I love food banks. We work closely with food banks. But I hope progressives understand that charity is not the answer to this problem. Hunger in America is caused by politics and can only be solved by politics by doing what every other country's done that solved this problem, increasing jobs, raising wages, and ensuring an adequate safety net. So it's, it's um, I mean, does that mean a 50 $15 minimum wage or what do you... It means a, a far higher minimum wage, but also means job creation. I think one of the things progressives have missed out on is the fact that robots really are replacing jobs and there are parts of America that still have extraordinarily high unemployment rates. So solutions that progressives propose, such as minimum wage hikes, which we strongly support, such as tying guaranteed uh, family and medical leave to work are great if you're working, right. but do nothing if, if you're not working. I support a dramatic expansion of the AmeriCorps National Service Program and saying that should be tied to basically your ability to pay your way through through college. We need obviously targeted infrastructure programs. We could have a massive employment program to deliver food to senior citizens and that would save massive amounts of money on Medicare and Medicaid because far fewer people would be institutionalized. We could ramp up uh, people being hired to work in universal pre-K centers. So I, I also push back against some progressives who just want a universal basic income.
Trump. I think it goes against human nature. I think that will be hijacked by the right to slash the safety net. I yeah, do I, believe that social services and social policy and social advancement should be tied to employment, but in a progressive manner that rewards upward mobility and has living wage jobs and lifetime benefits. So in effect, um, it's basically uh, like another new deal in the sense of government's got to step up as they as, as FDR did. And a, so, a, a new maybe, deal for the 20th first right, century. Right. We need to harness the private sector. We need to accept that we have a gig economy, but so, tie that to permanent So infrastructure, benefits. for example, if we really did a trillion dollars in infrastructure infrastructure create a lot of jobs broadband for rural uh, america is absolutely uh, critical so Absolutely. We need to reinvent the safety net. And some of my progressive friends don't like this, but we need to replace the massive social services bureaucracy in America where we have tens of thousands of people collecting forms the same way they did 50 years ago, have low-income people waiting online at agency after agency and replace that with a smartphone and still keep those- With a smartphone. employees, but transfer them to things like education and job training where humans can do a better job than machines. When um, the, the only politician that I know who has spoken about poverty lately, ironically, is Paul Ryan. Now, so he pretends, but what's the reality there? The reality is Ryan has the most undeserved reputation since I won't name whatever overrated (laughs) bands. uh, The fact of the matter, he talks about poverty, which masks the fact that each and every proposal he's ever issued in his entire career would increase poverty. The tax plan, of course, would shaft low-income people and middle-class people. He'd been talking for years and years and years about expansions of the earned income tax credit to help low-income people. Some of his proposals actually praise in the book, but guess what? The actual tax plan does doesn't have them. It has just increase in taxes for the rich. And their idea, get this, their idea is you're going to reduce poverty and hunger by taking away anti-poverty programs and taking away food. <laughs> That's like saying you're going to end drought by taking away water. It's preposterous. And the reason he gets away with it is there is a vacuum. There are exceptions. People like my friend, Congressman Jim McGovern of Massachusetts, who's truly a national anti-hunger hero, Barbara Lee from the Bay Area. There's some true champions of this. But by and large, the Democratic Party isn't talking about this. When I get a zillion fundraising emails or questionnaires, which we all know are basically fundraising gimmicks yeah, under yeah. the guise of asking for your opinion, they ask for 20 issues. They never mention poverty. They never mention hunger. They never mention homelessness. Even in that special election in Georgia, I wrote an op-ed on this. People said, oh, it's a wealthy congressional district. Well, poverty there over the last few decades has doubled. The vast where is this? In, in the Georgia congressional district where the Democrats oh, where, lost uh, the special Ossoff. election. Yes. Yeah, his whole messaging was tax cuts for small businesses, entrepreneurship, and the number of working people, even in that wealthy district, was massive. And so the Democratic consultants, who, as you know, make uh, actually commissions off TV ads, will say, do more TV ads, raise more money for TV ads, and yeah. we'll never say, have more people really connecting with working class people, not to be cynical, but they don't make money off of that. Ripping the mask off uh, some of the hypocrisy in both uh, Republican and Democratic politics, uh, Joel Berg, the book is America, We Need to Talk, a self-help book for the for the, for the the nation. You You mentioned homelessness. I mean, I, I don't know what the numbers are. I, that's what I'm, I guess, asking you. But I see more and more evidence of homelessness right here in the nation's capital. Every major city. I mean, Capitol Hill, let me tell you. You can't walk 
20 feet without a homeless person asking you for a handout. It's a problem all over the country, but particularly on the east and west coast because of housing costs, there's a massive homelessness crisis in every city. And many people, even progressive educated people, tend to equate homelessness with hunger when it's a small, small, small subgroup. So a few million people, depending on how you count, are homeless. 41 million people right. are living in homes that can't afford enough food. So it's, it's the most serious uh, manifestation of poverty. And most Americans also think that homeless people are basically substance abusing or mentally ill men. That's certainly a problem. But the vast majority of people are homeless in America are women and children. I, I, I was just going to say, I see a lot of women, you know, on the street with signs. In New York, I just came down from New York yesterday. Same thing here in Washington. And some of them with kids. It just breaks your heart. Right. They're not substance abusing. Many are working. They're not <laughs> mentally ill. They don't earn enough to pay the rent. In New York City, there are about 60,000 people living in shelters. Uh, Mayor de Blasio has been doing a lot of great progressive things, but it's a big national problem because of costs and, and wages and an inadequate federal safety net. Half of the people in New York City in shelters are children, and, and many are women. So the stereotypes people have are just wrong, and, and it's an incredibly fixable problem, just like hunger is a fixable problem. America almost ended hunger entirely in the 1970s because we had more jobs, higher wages, and a more adequate safety net. And we've gone backwards since the Reagan administration. I make the analogy in my first book on hunger, um, uh, uh, How Hungry is America? All You Can Eat, is that just as we had the myth that bucket brigades could end fires in America one bucket at a yeah, time, yeah. now we have the myth that canned food drives can end hunger in America one canned food drive at a time. <laughs> and if you knew your grandmother couldn't afford prescription drugs, you wouldn't say, oh, let's have a prescription drug drive in the neighborhood <laughs> and tell everyone to go into their medicine cabinet and donate the, the Tylenol they think granny needs. You'd say there should be a government program. Likewise, on hunger, this idea we should just donate food to strangers instead of ensuring that our tax dollars pay to create jobs, raise wages and sure people have a SNAP food stamps program. It's ridiculous. And progressives got to start understanding the hardcore economic issues. What happened to the war on poverty? And do we need another one? The war on poverty did something shocking. It worked. Between 1960 and 1974, I would date it from uh, Kennedy's election to actually Nixon. Nixon uh, created the Women's Infants and Children well, Program and Nutrition the, Program by the LBJ form. who declared the war on poverty. Uh, LBJ declared it, but actually Kennedy did some serious things. Kennedy's first executive order as president, before the Peace Corps, before anything, was creating the modern food stamp program, uh, which was authorized by Congress under Eisenhower. He refused to implement it because he said this isn't a problem in America. And then Kennedy authorized the distribu distribution of excess food to hungry people. Hmm. So some of the first anti-poverty programs were start under Kennedy. It was ramped up dramatically under LBJ basically expanded upon by Nixon. And between 1960 and 1974, the poverty rate in America was cut in half. It was cut in half. 16 million Americans really? entered yeah. the middle class. So we have this myth that it failed. What, By the way, and the main point of those programs wasn't to reduce poverty. Medicaid was to increase life expectancy for poor people. It did. You know, Section 8 was to improve housing conditions for poor people, and it did. Oh, mm -hmm. and by the way, 
poverty was cut in half. That plus the growth of the middle class. It wasn't just the government programs. It was the economic growth that was so inclusive. But even much of the 60s economic growth was fueled by government program, most notably the GI Bill, which yeah. helped millions and millions of Americans go to college, buy a first home, put a down payment on, on, uh, you know, on a business. Now, that was racially biased. So did it just peter out or where, what, where'd it go? It uh, died in Vietnam, like many other dreams of America, and it died in the Reagan Revolution, and it died when America did not respond to changing economic conditions and outsourced jobs instead of creating uh, American jobs. And it died, frankly, when media outlets other than yours stopped covering it. In 1968 and 1969, there were a few dozen network news stories on hunger in America, most years since then, zero. A few weeks yeah, ago, the federal government released new data on 41 million Americans going hungry. Not a single story in the Washington Post, Associated Press, New York Times, any of the cable networks, any of the national networks, not one story. And the editors say, oh, we covered that last year. And I said, <laughs> every day you have a sports section. No how, matter how many years in a row the Mets are in last place or near last place, you're going to have that every day. You're going to have business stats every day, even if there are microscopic changes in the, in the ratings. You know, the New York Times re-reviews operas when the lead soprano changes. So this idea that not even once a year can report on the richest country in the history of the world, having tens of millions of Americans not having enough food. It really talks about the corporate control, most of the rest of the media, and really the class bias among editors and, frankly, many upper middle class white re reporters. It was an issue in 2007, 2008, when reporters and editors and owners, their friends and business associates and social associates were in trouble and were yeah. worried. Once they got better, and it's back to plain old, you know, vanilla poverty impact. Right. Tens of millions of and Americans. once they got back, right? And there was, but you're saying right now, more people before the more people poor today than there were before the recession. Yes, and and we're told to accept that as as the new normal. And before the recession, we already had the highest <laughs> level of of poverty and hunger out of indu any industrialized Western country. The hungriest neighborhood in and around Paris is less hungry than the least hungry borough of New York City. Wow. And, and, for, okay. and, and, yeah. and but France again, we're is a big, diverse in, country. Yeah, yeah, we're just in denial about that as Americans. And I guess it's a little frustrating because what – so, you know, we have a wonderful, wonderful audience of progressives all around – all across the country, yeah. right? I'm sure a lot of people watching and listening to you are as frustrated as I feel. What can I do about it? Well, to be parochial, you can go to our website, hungerfreeamerica.org, uh, and donate to us and help our advocacy work. We do a lot of direct service work. Hung hung hungerfreeamerica.org. Okay. All right. We do a lot of direct service work, but frankly, that's far easier to fund than our advocacy work when it's our advocacy work building a new poor people's movement that's going to end the problem. If you don't yeah. have money to give, you can go to yeah. hungervolunteer.org, hungervolunteer.org, and find out how you can volunteer not by sorting food on Christmas and Thanksgiving, but really using your professional skills, engaging in policy advocacy, killing the Trump proposal to cut $192 billion with a B from the SNAP program, the new name for the food stamps program. Yeah. So you can donate, you can advocate, you can volunteer, you can fight back. All right. So let me be sure we get them again. And Jamie, we should put these up on our website, 
Hunger for hungerfreeamerica.org. Hungerfreeamerica.org. And the second one is hungervolunteer.org. Hungervolunteer. Okay. And now, also about, be parochial. You can buy my book, yeah, America right, We Need we to Talk, which has a very right. concrete now, section. Now, beyond that, yes. w- w- in their own community, what they can do. W- the w- most w- important thing to do is influence federal policy. Even in New York City, over 90% of the money spent fighting hunger is federal. So you need to keep marching. You need to keep calling after we defeat the repeal of, of health care. We need to fight against the Ryan budget. We cannot let up. And, you know, people say, oh, Joel, this is too hard. Well, you know, landing at a beach in Normandy, that was hard. Crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma while getting the crap beat out of you as John Lewis did, that was hard. Taking a few minutes to call your elected officials, even if it's every week, going to a protest, even if it's every month, that's pretty easy, and that's the least we can do. Should you give money to uh, housing shelters, homeless shelters? You should give money to shelters. You should give money to food banks. But it's equally important, if not more important, to give to organizations fighting at the root causes, fighting to create jobs, fighting to raise wages, fighting for an adequate safety net. Every penny of food distributed by a soup kitchen, food pantry, food bank in America is less than one twentieth of the size of the Federal Nutrition Assistance Safety Net. So let's focus on the big picture that's really going to solve this problem. Big picture on the federal policies. You know, it's good to know that somebody is out there raising this issue and fighting on this issue and, uh, you know, keeping the rest of us informed about what's really going on. Glad to hear the Barbara Lee's leading the fight, too. Joel Berg is the man. America, we need to talk. Thanks, Joel. This Thank you. is yeah. the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the bill press show live at youtube.com slash the bill press show yes indeed i've been attacked i've been attacked by sean hannity well actually i've been attacked by better people in my life and more intelligent people in my life but i wear it a badge i wear it as a badge of honor yes indeed hello everybody we'll tell you all about it here on uh, the bill press show This Thursday, September 28th, great to see you. We welcome you to the program. Wherever you happen to be in this great land of ours, we are there with you coast to coast uh, on the radio, on television, uh, online. So uh, you can't escape us. A lot to talk about today. Yes, indeed. Uh, The uh, president is still on the warpath against the NFL players uh, and owners. Uh, yesterday, Republicans, both uh, the president and the leadership in the Congress, rolled out what they claim is a great big tax reform plan for America. When you look at it, it is nothing but tax cuts for the wealthiest of Americans like Donald Trump and Steve Mnuchin and Gary Cohn and the other members of his uh, administration. 
Uh, and on the other hand, yes, indeed, Roy Moore driving the Republicans crazy uh, and more and more people replaying that 2005 interview uh, that I did with Roy Moore on C-SPAN where he said that homosexuality should be illegal. So watch out. Ellen DeGeneres and uh, Anderson Cooper and Don Lemon, he's coming after you when he gets, if he gets to the United States Senate. Uh, and we are blessed this hour to welcome uh, a good friend, uh, former Democratic State Chair of the great state of South Carolina, the Honorable Jamie Harrison is now Associate Chair of the DNC. Mr. Chairman, it's good to see you. Oh, Mr. Chairman, it's good seeing you as well. <laughs> Two former state chairs here, huh? <laughs> are you still state chair? No, I'm not state chair oh, okay. anymore. Okay. I'm just full-time on the DNC and, and well, working to help other state party chairs great. be successful. There's life after state chair. Exactly. We move on to greater, bigger things. And we'll jump uh, right into all the news of the day with you. want to hear from you. Your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. But first... This is the Full Court Our Press. Our Jamie always has the top headlines Just of the day. a couple of other stories for you on this Thursday morning. An investigation by Wired, Wired Magazine, revealed that Jared Kushner, Donald Trump's <laughs> son-in-law, is registered to vote in New York. No, not twice. You know, no, no voter fraud here. He's registered to vote in New York as a woman. Yes. Uh, Wired dug up the records. The registration dated back to 2009. That's worse than being registered as a Democrat. (laughs) There you go. His gender is listed as female in records from the New York State Board of Elections. As as I said, this this isn't a voter fraud issue, but we don't really have an explanation as to why it happened. It's just strange. However, important to note, it's not the first time that Jared Kushner... Uh, has reported to have filled out his paperwork incorrectly. Uh, Back in July, CBS reported uh, that he had to submit his federal disclosure form for security clearance not once, not twice, but three times. So Jared Kushner, just um, all these projects he's working on can't fill out paperwork correctly. (laughs) I'm a little concerned. Uh, yeah, and then he's got a little email problem, too, as we know, right? Yeah, yeah still a little bit. Uh, switching to some good news here, uh, rapper Pitbull uh, made headlines yesterday, not for his music. Uh, Pitbull uh, yesterday, who, he's Cuban. He offered up his private plane for cancer patients stuck in Puerto Rico so that they could be brought to the U.S. for chemotherapy treatments, which is a very nice thing for a man of his stature to do. Pitbull, uh, one of more than 30 artists who have joined forces with Jennifer Lopez and Mark Anthony for a coalition of artists working together to rush food, shelter, medicine, power, and communications to those in need from the effects of recent natural disaster. So Donald Trump may not be doing anything. Rapper Pitbull, Mr. Worldwide, most certainly is. Well, Donald Trump can't do anything because Puerto Rico's an island. <laughs> with a very, you know, in a very big ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's surrounded by water. You know, it's just amazing the things you learn from Donald Trump. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. All right, here we go on a Thursday, September 28th. Hello, everybody. Great to see you today. It is uh, the Bill Press Show, and uh, we've got uh, lots and lots going on for you today. 
Uh, just trying to keep up with the news of the day. Got to run fast to keep up with things uh, these days. Indeed, yesterday the Republicans are rolling out a joke of a tax reform plan. It's not tax reform at all. It's just tax cuts for the big corporations and for the wealthiest uh, of Americans. Uh, Donald Trump uh, tweeting out and talking out again this morning against the NFL players and the NFL owners uh, as well. Um, and um, Donald Trump announcing that next week they will not give up on trying to rip health care away from millions and millions of Americans. Having failed to repeal Obamacare, Donald Trump says he'll sign an executive order next week uh, trying to repeal, repeal Obamacare. Uh, and speaking of next week, next week uh, we will also see uh, on the floor of the House of Representatives a vote on articles of impeachment against President Donald J. Trump brought by Congressman Adam Green, the great, great Congressman Adam Green from Texas, who is going to join us in studio just about 20 minutes from now, From so don't miss that. Al Green. It, Al Green. I'm sorry. What did I... You said Adam. Adam. Oh, sorry about That's that. That's all right. I'm sorry. Congressman Al Green. Yes. You were indeed. up late with Maxine Waters last night. <laughs> I know. Excused. I was partying with Maxine. Right. By the way, he also has something to say about impeaching the president <laughs> of the United say. States. A lot to say. Right now, blessed to have in the studio with us, uh, Jamie Harrison is the associate chair and counselor for the Democratic National Committee. He was a candidate for chair of the Democratic National Committee and uh, until recently was chair of the Democratic Party in South Carolina, um, the Palmetto State. Yes. Mr. Chairman, nice to see you. It's good seeing you. You know what's one thing I must say I admire about Tom Perez. So, you know, Tom was a candidate. Keith Ellison, Congressman, was a candidate. You were a candidate for chair as well as some others. And he's brought all of you together. It's sort of like the team, team of rivals. rivals. Yeah, it is, you know. Uh, and, it, and it's been great. Tom Tom has rolled out the red carpet, allowed me for the, the issues that I really was interested in in the chair's race to really work on those, which is revitalizing state parties. And, and uh, we've been rolling up our sleeves and rolling out some good work on that. Well, I, you know, I know from first yes, you do. Uh, having been uh, the Democratic state chair of California from 1993 to 1996, a period when it was a great time to be a Democratic state chair because we had Bill Clinton in the White House. And from California, Dianne Feinstein and Barbara Boxer recently elected to the uh, United States Senate. Uh, so it was a hot time. But state parties are the fundamental building blocks of the national party. That's that's exactly right. I tell people all the time, you, you hear the, the folks talk about, well, what's the Democratic message? And I tell them, before you get to the message, you have to go to uh, the vehicle in which the message is dis disseminated to the people, and that's state parties. And if that vehicle is broken, if that conduit, the connection to the people is broken, then it doesn't matter how great your message is, because then you don't have that, that, that unit that helps to educate voters, mobilize voters, and get them to the polls. Right. So um – I yesterday um, was uh, was asked on a show about so um, how's the Democrat? Looks like the Democratic Party's in somewhat disarray these days, which I certainly disagree with. But if you talk about a party that's in disarray today, <laughs> right? I mean, here they've got control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, and they can't get a damn thing done. Can't get anything done. It's probably the most dysfunctional do-nothing government that we've ever seen in the history of this country. No. Right. I mean, and Tuesday, for example, 
They have to pull the plug on the repeal because it won't work. They lose the, their, their candidate, the establishment, lose party's candidate, loses in Alabama. And then Roy, uh, I mean, um, Senator Corker decides from, to leave. Tennessee. Tennessee says, you know, I've had it with this mess and this gang. I can't shoot straight. I'm going to I'm going to get out. And, Bill, I think we're going to see a number of retirements coming soon of Republicans, particularly more of the moderate Republicans who just decide that they don't want to be a part of this big mess. Uh, and you can't blame them. And that's going to give us Democrats even a, a greater opportunity to, to pick up some seats uh, in, in the next uh, in the next cycle. So I'm really excited about the, the, the opportunity. In so many ways, this election cycle is shaping up similar to 2006. Uh, and, and you see the similarities. I was uh, the executive director of the House Democratic Caucus in 2006 when we took back the, the House mm-hmm. of Representatives and took back the Senate. Um, and Governor Dean, uh, who was the chairman of DNC at the time, had his 50-state strategy. Yeah. And those same type of dynamics and synergy, uh, this, this this culture of corruption that was pervasive in Washington, D.C., are the same type of dynamics that we're seeing right now. All right. And this week, um, and we've talked with Tom about this, uh, the chairman here when he's been in, in studio with us, uh, the focus on particularly on state legislative races, uh, flipping some of these state houses back uh, to Democratic control, a couple of big wins this week that uh, sort of got lost in the shuffle. Everybody talked about Roy Moore, but tell us about that. That's exactly right. So you know, since July, we have picked up six seats in state legislatures that were in Trump areas uh, that, that were heavily Trump uh, districts that are now controlled or now have a Democrat in them. And two of them took place this week. One was in New Hampshire uh, in uh, a House district there. Carrie Lerner was our our candidate who uh, won in a district which Trump won by 59 (laughs) percent. And then in Florida, we had a Senate district. uh, Annette uh, Annette ran in this Republican district where Rick Scott and, and Marco Rubio won handedly. And we were able to pick up that district as well. And so uh, we're really, really excited. And we're seeing on a local level, we're seeing this unprecedented uh, effort between the Democratic Party and progressive groups, Indivisible, Our Revolution, all working together for one purpose, which is to to kick out the Republican in that district and to implant a, a, a Democrat. And, and there's been a lot of success on the local level. And sadly, uh, the, the national press hasn't really covered that. No, uh, they won't. I guess they have to get uh, up enough numbers. But you've mentioned that um, so th- just this year picked up six six seats uh, and Republicans, none, none. correct? Not they've none. not what? And, and total, it's been eight. Uh, if you if you oh. look at the calendar year, it's oh. been eight. But since July, it's been July. it's it's been six. Right. Uh, and so we're very pleased. And listen, we got some great leadership in in some of these states who are really really pushing organizing. Uh, our efforts in resistant summer and what the DNC has tried to do is be a good partner with our local uh, with, with our local partners to put staff down in the ground uh, to provide the in-kind resources that are needed to help them get over the finish line and we're seeing success as a result of it. So uh, I know that it flipped the other way because frankly we didn't have our eye on the ball. Uh, and the Republicans saw the opportunity, saw the saw, saw the the possibility. Uh, they put together this program called Red Map. Yep. Uh, Carl Rove did. 
Ed Gillespie is now candidate for uh, uh, governor of Virginia, a losing candidate, uh, <laughs> was part of that strategy. And they identified, how, they figured out how many state legislatures do we need and which ones can we go after and how much money do we need? And they went out there, and again, while we were asleep at the switch, they did it. Yeah, and you know we... And so now, I guess my question, do we have a blue map strategy to flip them back? We we do, and you know part of the part of what the Republicans did was they learned from what we did. They saw the the fifty state strategy in two thousand and six and how successful that was. We won seats in Kansas, and I can tell you that was not on Rahm Emanuel's. Uh, uh, target list, uh, that Nancy Border seat. We won that seat because Howard Dean said, you know, we have to compete in every state. We mm-hmm. have to invest resources in every state so that we can touch the voters and talk to the voters. And we were able to win and have success there. But we abandoned that after the 08 race. And as a result, our grassroots effort, the, the resources that we had in those uh, in those states all fell apart and gave the Republicans a, a tremendous opportunity to then take advantage. So now what we're trying to do is to bolster our resources, uh, uh, focus our resources to bolster the efforts in those states so that we can push back. What Eric Holder, uh, Attorney, former Attorney General Eric Holder and President Obama is doing on the redistricting front is also going to be extremely helpful uh, to give us that synergy to make up the to make up the difference uh, in 2020 when we look at reapportionment again. Our guest in studio, uh, Jamie Harrison, who is the associate uh, chair of the DNC. It's Democrats.org. And again, as I mentioned, Mr. Chairman, and I want to ask you about uh, the uh, this uh, uh, Donald Trump's comments on the NFL. He has added again this morning on Twitter. This is a Bill Press Show breaking news update. And on Fox and Friends. This I just morning. want to wedge in a quick breaking news update. We'll get to those NFL comments in oh, a second, okay. but this is actually concerning Puerto Rico. Oh. Sarah Sanders just Ooh. tweeting from her at PressSec Twitter account at Ricardo Rosillo request, that is the governor of Puerto Rico. POTUS has authorized the Jones Act be waived for Puerto Rico. It will go into effect immediately. This is something yesterday that Donald Trump was uh, saying that he may not do. This was something that was done for Houston and for Florida. Uh, yeah, so let's we'll get to the NFL in just a second. But yeah. it so last weekend, because um, I follow him on Twitter, I don't know why, but, well, he's the president of the United States. <laughs> um, he's, he put out 22 tweets on the NFL not one on Puerto Rico. And and we joked a little bit about we learned that Puerto Rico is an island from yeah. him. I mean, <laughs> it was a week before he even mentioned the devastation in Puerto Rico. Where, I mean, there there's still areas of that island where people are suffering they haven't even gotten to yet. Um, totally, total without power, almost the entire island, I think, 99% of the island. And Donald Trump, it, until like two days ago, yeah. Hadn't said a word about no, it. and and you know Puerto Rico. I have a lot of good friends down there, and my heart goes out to them and the Virgin Islands because the Virgin Islands also yes. got wallop, right. and and the president hasn't talked about them either. Uh, and it could be months before they have electricity. Just think about that not not being able and think about the, no, no, drinking water, safe drinking, drinking water. water. Think yeah. about ba- the babies that they have down there and the formula and all. And, you know, I have a three year old, so I know how important it is to feed them on time to and. <laughs> yeah. And it, it just hurts my heart to think that our president is just so clueless 
so clueless. He probably doesn't even didn't know that these people were Americans. Well, uh, no, that's the other <laughs> thing. If he didn't know it was an island, no, he didn't know they were Americans. That's exactly probably right. Still doesn't. Right? Yeah, and, and it's just shameful. Absolutely shameful. I applaud uh, President Obama and President Clinton and the former presidents George. Uh, uh, H.W. and W. Bush, and all coming together to, to raise funds to help mm-hmm. uh, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And, you know, it's good to see bipartisan leadership, at least from our former presidents, but this president is just clueless. No, yeah. totally, totally missed the beat when it came to uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, again, maybe because he was too distracted uh, by this controversy that he has generated over the uh, NFL players. And this morning, uh, he was uh, – this was Fox and Friends? It's an exclusive interview with Fox and Friends, yeah. So he wasn't on set, but I guess it was another phoner, right? From no, the, he. this was an in-person interview. Oh, I think it was actually taped it. yesterday after the rally in Indianapolis. Got it. Okay. Where he's talking about the owners now and why would the owners – I guess he's asked, why would the owners lock arms with or take a knee with their players? Here's the, the president. I think they're afraid of their players. You want to know the truth. And I think it's disgraceful. And they've got to be tough and they've got to be smart. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's disgraceful. The president of the United States would say that. But what is that? What is, what, there's so much wrong with that. This guy is the divider in chief. He, he is all about division and picking apart this, the, the, the scabs uh, that have healed in this country and, and, and creating these open wounds. You know, it's really, really sad. You know, what I want to do is get a constitution, wrap it up and put it in big, bold letters, because I don't know if he reads well Mm -hmm. and and actually send it to him. Um, He he just doesn't understand uh, what it means to be an American. He doesn't understand what the symbol, the flag actually means. It's about freedoms, the freedom of press, the freedom of speech, all of these things that he attacks on a daily basis. And yet you may not agree with the the players kneeling. That's fine. But you cannot argue with their right as American citizens to protest in the manner in which they, they, they feel is appropriate to them. And, and it's just really, really sad. And I always say, these, these guys aren't doing it. Ask them why are they kneeling. It, has he ever thought about asking them, what is it that is bothering you so much that this is what you want to do? He, he, he doesn't have that type of intellectual curiosity, first of all, in order to do that. And he just really doesn't care. Uh, also, we were told uh, Monday, uh, the president has said this, and then Sarah Huckabee Sanders at the White House briefing Monday, I was there, uh, said uh, this has nothing to do with race at all. Okay, so let's just back up. He made these comments in Alabama mm-hmm. against NFL players, 75 or yeah. some percent who are African-American, African-American, who were some of them, of a handful of them at the time, were protesting police brutality against young, particularly young, unarmed black men in this country. But this has nothing to do with race. Yeah, because he's an aficionado on, on racial issues, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's beyond dog whistle, isn't it? it? It really is dog whistle, and it's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. And you know what's even worse is the Republicans uh, who, who just rubber stamp him. You know, Dr. King in his letter from, uh, letter from Birmingham jail, which is so appropriate, said that, 
you know, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the, the actions and the words of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Mm. And the question is, are the good people in the Republican Party, and there are good people there, people that I consider dear friends, when are they going to stand up? When are they going to say enough is enough, that we are tired of you dividing us, we're tired of you, you pressing these issues and, and causing our country to fall apart? And they just have—I haven't seen someone to just have that backbone to say enough is enough. When is Paul Ryan going to do it? When is Mitch McConnell going to do it? Or can't—do they have the gumption? Or is it all about winning for them? Uh, and it's just sad because ultimately before a party—listen, I'm a, I'm a diehard Democrat. But before anything, I'm an American citizen, and, and I believe in the freedoms. I get goosebumps whenever I see that Capitol Dome at, lit up at night. Uh, yep, so do I, and I live right here. Exactly. And, and it, it's just amazing that they can't put their country before this divisive, uh, idiotic pres- president. Yeah, uh, as the latest poll I showed this morning, by the way, uh, I, I think this is instructive. Of They all say, well, you know, he's— his base loves him. Yeah, his base may love him, but, you know, that that that's all. That's right? it. So this latest Quinnipiac poll this morning, some of the numbers, 60% of Americans say he's doing more to divide us than unite us, call him, as you call him, divider-in-chief, right? 51% say they're embarrassed to have him as president of the United States. 70% say his rhetoric in North Korea is not helpful. 59% say he is non, not, not honest and 69% stay, say he should stop tweeting. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not playing well. No, it's not playing it well at all. It's you know, not playing well at all. And he keeps going out and saying the whole country you know, loves him. Uh, I have to ask you about South Carolina. Yes. I love going down to South Carolina, and I have really, really good friends there. None better than Don Fowler, former state chair and his wife carol yes wonderful friends i'm going to see them i'm going actually down on the 16th of october to speak to don's class at the citadel yeah i've seen it never been in the citadel and uh, really looking forward to that so you've got as one of your senators lindsey graham oh lindsey who not only resurrects this effort to repeal after it died and was gone we thought brings back this effort to repeal Obamacare with a bill, he and Bill Cassidy, which was worse than the first repeal bill. They couldn't even get 50 votes under reconciliation. And yesterday, he admitted that he didn't know what the hell he was doing, that he was in way over his head because he said, you know, like foreign policy, that's my long suit. But I didn't, yeah, basically he said, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. No. What is going on? A sixth of the American economy is in health care. And these guys are just playing. It's almost like my three-year-old going out into the in the sandbox and just throwing sand. They are just playing because they, Obamacare and all they care about is getting rid of Obamacare. They don't really care about the impact or what have you. In South Carolina, we have closed two rural hospitals because Governor then Nikki Haley and Governor now Henry McMaster refused to expand Medicaid. And two rural hospitals have closed as a so result. you're not a Medicaid expansion no, state. No, we're not a Medicaid expansion state. We got over 300,000 people who would have health care today had our legislature and Lindsey and his good friends would actually do it. And, Bill, this is the bad thing. Republicans believe that you can block grant everything. You know, it, it, everything, block grant solves all of the world's problems. Well, the problem is when you have a dysfunctional state, 
like South Carolina, in which our state government is dysfunctional, they couldn't pass a roads bill to fill the potholes in, in South Carolina. It took six, seven years in order to pass a bill to fill a pothole. And then you want to give the health care of all of the citizens the responsibility to a state legislature that can't even fill potholes? In South Carolina, the schools, our Constitution says that all the state is responsible for for public schools is what is minimally adequate. Just mm. think about that. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. And, and so the Supreme Court said, no, you got to do the more. the lowest common denominator. Exactly right. And our legislature is responsible for that. Uh, and you want to turn the health care of, of the folks to those people? Lindsey should have been ashamed of himself. He should have said whenever Rick Santorum and they were sitting in the barbershop coming up with this harebrained oh, yeah. idea yeah. Yeah. That, that, you know what, Rick, give that to somebody else. Because he didn't even know the impact on South Carolina right. when he walked into this thing. No. I Just mean, shameful. There's a reason why Rick Santorum is not in the Senate it's, any amen longer. Amen to that. <laughs> right. Amen to that. And for Lindsey Graham to get this idea from Rick Santorum in the Senate barbershop and then run with it and basically make a fool of himself, but Pretty but much. spend all that time and drag all the Republican leadership and the Republican senators and the White House and get them all involved in it and then not been able to deliver. It's yeah. just a, a foolhardy. Yeah, total monumental. So um, what shape is the Democratic Party in today and who's the leader of the Democratic Party? Well, I think there are a lot of leaders in the Democratic Party. And, you know, whenever the party is out of the White House, there is not one defined leader. Uh, uh, I think, you know, what the efforts that Pelosi and Schumer are taking, the, the efforts that our governors are pushing, the attorney generals really are mm-hmm. our front line right now. and We need to put more emphasis on the importance of that role. Uh, Tom is doing a great job of starting to put back together the, the organization and the infrastructure of the state parties, and I'm uh, proud to be a part of that team with him to do that. So you got a lot of different actors and characters in this in this play, um, all working hand in glove uh, to to uh, to bolster and, and the party. Are, are you bringing back the 50 state strategy? Yes, which I think is so important. We are. Plus steroids. I mean, it, it is. So starting next month, October, uh, well, in a few days, we will be sending $10,000 a month to every state party in the country. Hmm. Whoa. $10,000 a month, every Damn, state I party. I might go back to California. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then we, we added this into the mix as well. I, I give Ken Martin, who's the, the president of all of the state party chairs. Uh, Ken took an idea that I talked about in Ray Buckley in New Hampshire. He's and a great guy, too. He, he really is. I love Ray. Uh, and uh, worked with Tom to create this fund for innovation. So we were, we're putting $10 million into it, and state parties can apply for a grant from that fund to help on any innovative effort they have in order to help win elections. So uh, if a state wants to replicate the program we have in South Carolina, I created a fellowship named after Jim Clyburn to build a bench. So every year we pick 40 to 50 young people in South Carolina, and we train them to be candidates for office. Wow. One of my That's one great. of our fellows yeah. just won a, uh, a house, uh, a special election in the House race uh, just recently. He started the fellowship, and the seat opened up, and he said, you know what, I want to run. And all of the other fellows galvanized, went down and campaigned with him, and he won the special election. And so 
if states want to have those type of innovative programs, now there's a, a, a grant on a national level that they can apply for in order to help them uh, build these type of programs. And so I'm very proud of what Tom's doing right now to really bolster state parties and be a, a good partner with them here in D.C. Well, that's that. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. That's very helpful. And, you know, on the on the idea of I get asked that question, too, all the time. Who's the dem- leader of the Democratic Party today? You know, my 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 answer is to we don't need one right now. Yeah. You know, one will emerge, but right now there are a lot of leaders out there, and particularly in the grassroots. The grassroots is on fire, like I've never seen it before. It's amazing, Bill. Right. I, I mean, that's where the energy is coming from. Let me tell you, there are some stars. I, I'm going to try to s- set something up where I highlight some. Of, I'm going all, all over the country to a lot of these different states, and I meet some amazing people that that I think nationally folks don't even know about. i give you an example. Anthony Daniels, who is the young minority leader in the Alabama State House, hmm. this guy needs to be on everybody's radar screen because yeah. he is amazing, absolutely amazing, but people don't know about it. Yeah, another one who emerged in the race, by the way, is um, Peter, I think his first name, Buddha Judge? Uh, yeah, uh, Pete, out in, uh, Mayor Pete. Uh, out in South Bend. Yeah. yeah. Watch him. Oh, yeah, very, he's, very he's smart really and great right. guy. So we don't have to be too depressed uh, by Lindsey Graham and Tim <laughs> Scott being the leaders uh, Lord uh, being, uh, uh, from South Carolina. Just think about the great leaders they have, like James Clyburn, who you mentioned, yes. and also Chairman Jamie Harrison. Well, thank, thank you, you Mr. Chairman. Thank, thank you so you. much this for coming in. This has been in. fun. Democrats.org. Uh, yes, indeed. He is raising hell in the United States House of Representatives, and we'll do so here in studio. Uh, the great Congressman Al Green from Texas joining us next year on The Bill Press Show. We have a lot of shippers and a lot of people and a lot of uh, people that work in the shipping industry that don't want the Jones Act lifted. And we have a lot of ships out there right now. Get social with Bill Press. Like us at Facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. On a Thursday, September 28th, uh, hello everybody and welcome uh, or welcome back to The Bill Press Show. It's good to have you with us today as we join you wherever you happen to be in this great land of ours. We're right there alongside of you on television, on the radio, and coming to you from Washington, D.C., our studio right here on Capitol Hill, where we're brought to you today by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Yes, indeed, the good men and women of the Teamsters Union. Under President Jim Hoffa, we all live better because of their good work, and we uh, salute them and thank them for their support of the program. Go to teamster.org to find out more about uh, all the great uh, battles that they're waging on behalf of working families uh, in this country. Um, yesterday on the floor of the House of Representatives, uh, a pledge and a promise about something we can expect next week. We've talked about it uh, a lot here on the program. Uh, Let's listen to a member of Congress uh, and an issue he wants to bring to the floor and will next week. Mr. Speaker, I denounce the comments that were made, and I rise to announce... That on next week, Mr. Speaker, 
I will bring a privileged resolution before the Congress of the United States of America. I will stand here in the well of the Congress and I will call for the impeachment of the President of the United States of America. Those words by Congressman Al Green representing Texas 9th District who's sitting right across from me here in our studio. Mr. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for coming in today and thank you for who you are and what you're doing. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm honored to be with you this morning. So the question always is, uh, he's only been there nine months. Isn't it a little too early to be bringing articles of impeachment against the president of the United States? Well, actually, Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution doesn't have a timeline. It deals with the behavior, and it deals with the impact of what the president might do on society. And it also does not require any commission of a crime. Unfortunately, Congress— How about high crimes and misdemeanors? uh, Well, that's a British term that was borrowed. They used that for a couple of centuries before we adopted it, and it does not require the commission of a crime. Here is what it does require. It requires that a president uh, commit some act that might be harmful to society. And here is where I think we made a mistake. We in the House have made a mistake by outsourcing the investigation of a president— By allowing the Justice Department to perform the investigation, it gives the appearance that we're looking for crimes. Mm -hmm. The Judiciary Committee does this. And if the Judiciary Committee does it, the Judiciary Committee won't be looking for a crime. It's not about investigating crimes. They may find that there is a crime. But the Judiciary Committee could bring articles of impeachment. Uh, Any member can bring articles of impeachment, and I intend to do so. And what will the foundation of the, in other words, he sh- you'll have to say, if not a crime, Donald Trump should be impeached for what? Fill in yes. the blank. Yes. Well, his original sin was interfering with the investigation, uh, the investigation of his campaign um, by uh, the uh, then uh, uh, director of the uh, FBI. Uh, that was his, orig- uh, excuse me, the head of the Justice Department. That was his original sin. And that sin doesn't go away. It doesn't matter how long he's president, that will still be there because he interfered with the investigation and then he went on national TV at prime time and confessed, said he fired him because of that Russia thing. So that that in and of itself is uh, the original sin. Now there are other things that he's done as well and I'll bring up some of them. I'm still trying to decide. I've got such a long list, believe me, and I have it all codified, but I'm gonna go through it and try to narrow it. Right, so a lot of members feel that uh, Democrats uh, well, we, yes, Donald Trump should be impeached, but we have to wait for Robert Mueller to complete his investigation. Well, that's not true. As a matter of fact, that could be a mistake uh, because he may come back with the conclusion that um, Mr. Trump has done nothing. We don't know what his conclusion would be. That's why the framers of the Constitution did not require the Justice Department's intervention. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, the Justice Department is a part of the executive branch of government. Mm -hmm. Would they want someone Mm -hmm. that the president appoints to investigate the president? They gave this to the House. It is the sole province of the House, and it but takes only the House to impeach, which would be an indictment, and then the Senate would have a trial with the Chief Justice presiding. Right. So the House can decide under the Constitution. Yes. Uh, and uh, to my knowledge of the Constitution and the law, I think you're absolutely correct, what the impeachable offense is. Yes. And it does not have, does not require that it be uh, against uh, the law. No, a statutory offense. Not required that you have a statutory offense breached. Not at all. Right. 
Um, I mentioned to you uh, off the air last night. I interviewed um, Congresswoman Maxine Waters. I love the, her. She's at a the Hill Center. Lady. Yes, you know, a great colleague of yours and friend. Yes, uh, and. Uh, the congresswoman pointed out, who was also one of the very first ones to say Donald Trump should be impeached, that Bill Clinton was impeached by the Republican House for lying. Um, well, if lying <laughs> is an impeachable, is an impeachable offense, offense. <laughs> uh, you got a long list right there yeah. of lies that Donald Trump has told. Yes. Uh, well, uh, that's true. But um, <clears throat> let me just so that may be on, one of those may yeah, be on your list. I, I assure you, there'll there'll be some of that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, let me do this. Uh, th- that clip that you showed, uh, I want to just mention because this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Not that the, the, the NFL comments. Yes, yes, the straw. And I just want to go into the straw for just a moment Please. because this was not something I intended to do uh, when I announced some four months ago that I thought the president should be impeached. Um, my my belief was that uh, someone else might take this to the floor, but it hasn't happened. But here's a straw. The president talks about how we should respect the flag, and I respect the flag. I want liberty and justice for all. By the way, I think that's what those players want too, liberty and justice for all, as extolled in the flag, the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. But here's what the president said. He wants people to respect the flag as he disrespects motherhood. For him to say that the players are the sons of dogs and to call a mother of a player a dog that's what an sob is a b is a dog uh, that's a bit much you're taking indecency to a new low when you make that kind of comment and the president of the united states is looked up to by children they want to be like the president they want to talk like the president people around the world look to hear what the president says this president has taken indecency to a place where it should not be. And that is the straw that broke the camel's back for me. There are many other things that have happened. Uh, What happened in Charlottesville was disgraceful and the way the president approached it, the way the president fired the FBI uh, director, Mr. Comey, uh, who was investigating him, all of these things. But the straw was when he did this. I could take no more. And uh, Donald Trump insists uh, that his statements about the NFL players had nothing to do with race. It's all about the flag and respect for the flag and respect for the uh, national anthem. Well, 70% of the players are of African ancestry. So I think the empirical evidence, uh, can, with that you can build a circumstantial case for it being about race. However, um, let's look at the effect. Whether they are, it's about black players or white players, The effect of what he said is that he disrespects motherhood. And that really is what's important. Because let's just assume he was talking about a white player. I would still hold the same position, that the president ought not call a white mother um, Mm -hmm. a a dog. Uh, I don't think he should call a black mother a dog. And by the way, Kaepernick's mother, uh, I don't know whether people have noticed, but yeah. uh, yeah. Uh, She can't, yeah, uh, Colin Kaepernick's mother uh, in response, said, uh, you may call me that, but I'm a proud bitch, <laughs> to use the word. Yeah. Uh, I never use the word, but I appreciate the, the uh, fact that you made the point said. for me. I'm just quoting her. It, yes, right. you made the point, and I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and he has not let up on this at all. Uh, we just, uh, just about half an hour ago, uh, they played on Fox and Friends, uh, the president yesterday with an exclusive interview for Fox and Friends 
last night after his rally in Indianapolis, where he was asked, why do you think the owners, all of whom are white, by the way, are siding with the players uh, against you, Mr. President? And so, you know, not backing down, here's Donald Trump. I think they're afraid of their players. You want to know the truth. And I think it's disgraceful. And they've got to be tough and they've got to be smart. So the owners are doing this because they feel that these players are good people or have a point or um, have a right to protest. They're doing it because they're afraid of the players, says the president. Well, I think that um, the players are doing it because they think it's the right thing to do to protest injustice. I think that's a good thing that they're doing. Mr. Trump seems to think that if you're a person who makes a lot of money, that you should not protest in this way. Um, that's called hush money. Mm-hmm. He, he sees that as hush money. He wants people to keep their mouths shut and take their checks home and be happy. Um, suffer in comfort, if you will, and allow others to continue to suffer as they may. Uh, I am adamantly opposed to the proposition that uh, the president has, uh, has the, the authority to order uh, owners to fire people. This could be yeah. tortious interference with a contract. Uh, it could be a, a, an offense, a civil offense, that might hmm. be a, something that might be litigated because the president is encouraging the owners to fire people. Uh, I Based think on that, their political yeah, beliefs. I, I yeah. think that uh, some good lawyer might look into that. Let me ask you, what, um, uh, what response do you get from your colleagues um, we know the Republican the Republican members of Congress are just hanging behind. We've seen already. They'll stand behind Donald Trump. It doesn't matter what he says or what he does. He said some of the most offensive things that we've heard any public figure in our history say, and yet the Republicans will all still rally behind him. What response do you get from your Democratic colleagues? How many do you think will stand with you next week? I've not lobbied a single person. Really? Not one. Not one. Uh, I have indicated from the genesis that uh, this is a matter of principle. Uh, this is a matter of conscience. I believe it was uh, Jefferson, uh, Thomas Jefferson, who said that in matters of style, uh, swim with the current. But in matters of principle, stand like a rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, I stand. Uh, this is a matter of principle. And my, my hope is that colleagues will support it. But if they do not, I give one assurance. There will be at least one vote to impeach President Trump. Will there be, when you say you'll bring these articles to the floor, will there be a vote next week or will it just, will there be a committee hearing or how does it work? I'll bring these articles to the floor next week. Mm-hmm. Um, if I Any member can, correct? Any, any, any one of the 435 members. Okay. And, and that, it, it, as an individual, you don't at, need a, an a committee hearing you, or you, whatever. You don't no. need anybody's permission. Uh, and I, that's why I don't abdicate this to anybody else. Any other member can do it. Uh, I respect the other members and their timelines, if they so desire or not. Uh, but uh, when it's brought to uh, the attention of the floor, uh, you, you will make your, uh, your statement on the floor. And after you make your statement, then uh, there will be a, a, as much as two days of consideration for that statement to give the parliamentarian an opportunity to peruse it. Thereafter... You come back to the floor, and uh, the statement can either be voted up or down, uh, the articles of impeachment by way of a privileged res- resolution, uh, 
or if they're not voted up or down, they can be tabled, there can be a vote to table it, or there can be a vote to send it to committee. Um, all of these are possibilities, mm. but the vote will count. There will be a vote, and um, I will be voting. Uh, if there's a vote to table, I will vote against that because I want him impeached. Right. If there's a vote to send it co- to committee, I'll vote against that because when you send it to a committee, it never returns. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll yeah. vote against that Particularly as well. Particularly with, with this gang in charge, yes, right? Yes. Yeah. They'll bury it. That, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Uh, and um, so do you have a day? Have you announced a specific day on which you're going to do this next week? I have not announced a specific day. Be, uh, quite candidly, um, last night I had an episode with um, an allergy attack, so... Uh, it just depends on a lot of circumstances related to timing uh, with reference to the office, things I'm doing, and whether or not I'm having a sneeze uh, attack. Uh, so we'll we'll wait and see. But it, it'll happen next week. That's, that's the assurance that I can give you. Uh, if I have to whisper, it will happen next week. Uh, it's my belief, uh, sir, that um, a, a fire can start with a single match. Um, it only takes a drop of rain to start. Uh, or an inundation. So there has to be a fire. There has to be a spark to start the fire. Rosa Parks, um, I don't think she thought that when she took that seat as a matter of principle that she was going to change segregation then and there. But she knew that as a matter of principle, she was not going to allow herself to be discriminated against. So one day next week, if you if you can, if you have a chance, I see your press aide here with us uh, in the studio. Just give us 24 hours notice. It'd be nice to know if you're going to do it the day before so we can all be poised uh, to be sure. But uh, it, it, it will, uh, you will make news whenever you do it. I have no, no, no doubt about that. So the, depending on when you do it, the vote, as you say, two days later, could come next week or could come the following week. That but is correct. But it will happen uh, in this early day. It will go to the floor next week. If we, then, if we uh, brought it to the floor on Friday, then obviously... Uh, it would not be voted on. Congressman Al Green with us uh, from uh, the great state of Texas, the 9th District, uh, here in studio with the big news about his plans for next week, coming through on an issue that you first started talking about. About four, four months ago, a little and more than four months ago. you were the very first one on the floor of the House, as I recall. Well, that's what people say. I, I'm really not bothered to, to check, to be yeah. quite honest. Uh, I've heard that. Right. But uh, I, I do know this, that... Um, uh, this this is something that I don't take lightly. That's why four months have gone by. I don't take it lightly. I've not rushed to be the first person. In fact, I didn't insist on being on the floor at all. But I do know that we cannot allow the president to continue to behave as he has. He should be impeached. Whether he will be or not will be left up to the Congress. But at least one person will vote to impeach him. Uh, we started, uh, at, 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 I think it was at the top that I may be mistaken, it may be in the last half hour, but we talked a little bit about, no, it was with uh, Chairman uh, Jamie Harrison, Yes. Uh, about the president's um, kind of strange delay in recognizing that Puerto Rico was in trouble, the people of Puerto Rico in serious trouble. Uh, not getting much help at all from the United States, that the president uh, seeming not to realize it was an an island that couldn't just send the trucks down there. It's an island sitting in the middle of an ocean, and it's yeah. a big ocean. It's a very big ocean. I wanted to ask you about your experience with Hurricane Harvey uh, in Texas. Was your uh, district impacted, uh, and what response did you see on the part of FEMA? 
Well, it was impacted, and um, we uh, had one of our district offices uh, hit by a tornado. Um, the roof was damaged severely, and um, we had some of the facade damaged, and we've had to relocate from that office. But that uh, impact is not as important as what has happened to my constituents. Uh, we have constituents that have all of their belongings that were on the first floor on the street. And it's not just one house or one block. You go through an entire neighborhood, a community, and house after house, block after block. Now, what part of Texas is this, Congressman? This is in Houston, Texas. You're a part and, of Houston. Yes, yeah. sir. I'm in Houston. I'm the south side of the city. Um, and there's an area that I have a, a portion of called Meyerland. And in that area, uh, people have suffered greatly. But there, there's also another area where people who are wage earners are living. These are persons of limited means. Uh, many of them are undocumented. They had their cars uh, completely covered in water. Mm. Their homes were flooded uh, some three feet of water or more in their homes. And uh, you really have to go into their homes to appreciate what's happening in their lives. From television, you get the benefit of one of your senses, the sense of sight. But when you go into the home and you can smell the Clorox mm. they're constantly using, and you can see them having to- And the mold, probably, The mold too, you huh? can smell, yes. And you see them waiting outside, can't go into their homes because of the odor. Uh, and you hear the babies crying, and you hear them uh, explaining that uh, they're not going to have a way to get to work, that their children uh, may have to go to school, and they're at, on their way to a shelter. It really has devastated some lives. And a good many people may need some help with counseling just to, um, to get through this because they've been traumatized, uh, especially some of the children have been traumatized. So uh, it has had a devastating impact on my district. Now, to, to part of the second part of your question in terms of FEMA, uh, <clears throat> this was a, an uh, event unlike any that we've seen before, but it was the third event in Houston in three years. Yes. Uh, so there are some people who say the it's third 500-year storm, so-called 500-year <laughs> yeah. storm, right? But whether yeah. it's a 500-year storm or not, they're billion-dollar storms. They're multi-billion-dollar storms. Uh, but with this one, um, we had some 33 trillion gallons of rain, and we measured the amount of rainfall in feet, not inches, and the duration in days, not hours. Mm. So it was a lot. But here's what happened. Um, when uh, FEMA did its staging, uh, my suspicion is they, they tried to stage for a certain amount of rainfall. But when people were stranded, um, I was a little disappointed that we didn't get help in a lot faster. Uh, I don't like seeing people waving flags, waving something white, saying, I need help. Somebody yeah. come and get me. So uh, we did uh, call to the attention of uh, the public that we needed helicopters. Helicopters are used to extricate people. Sure. And uh, they brought in more helicopters. They brought in more National Guard. A guardsman uh, to to help people. Uh, that's the kind of thing a government is supposed to do. So if you're on an island, and if you can't get there because it's an island in a big ocean, the richest country in the world has the assets and the resources to get to you. The richest country in the world can get you the water that you need, can get helicopters to extricate people and save lives. This is the richest country in the world. This is what we do. We did it in, um, in Pakistan. I was there after the uh, earthquakes. I, I was in Sri Lanka after the tsunami. I was in Haiti uh, as well. Uh, I, I've seen what we, our soft power can do, how we can bring in the heavy uh, equipment, and how we can start to move 
stones and buildings mm-hmm. and turn things around. Uh, I'm very disappointed in the uh, way the president has handled this. The president has failed the people of Puerto Rico. He has failed them. And they have every right to be upset with him. And I believe every right to uh, let people know that uh, when he comes, they're going to tell him just how they feel. Uh, I talked to my friend, uh, uh, another great talk show host, Joe Madison. Uh, oh, yes. From Sirius yes. XM yes, last evening about this. And he had um, uh, a general, I forget the man's name, on his show yesterday morning who said, you know, if we had been asked, I mean, what the sure. U.S. military, you've seen it in yes. Pakistan and other places, yes. that the U.S. military, if they'd just been given some direction from the Pentagon or from the White House, he said they, we, they could go down to Puerto Rico. They could build a city overnight. You the, know, the they've mil- got the resources to do that, and uh, they're and they're ready to do that. And uh, and the president was so busy attacking the NFL, he forgot about Puerto Ricans, who, by the way, happen to be Americans. Americans. Absolutely, the but Americans. Do you think Donald Trump even knows that? Well, um, I, I hope that he does. I I, I want to say to you that I, I hope yeah. that he does. But let me make this point. Um, I was asked yesterday, um, what what would it take to get the kind of response that Puerto Rico merits? And here's what it would take. Pretend that Puerto Rico is Texas. <clears throat> Just pretend it's Texas with the representation that Texas has in Congress. Uh, pretend it's Texas. And uh, if you can do this, I guarantee you, you'll get an aid package to Puerto Rico immediately, if not sooner. Yeah. Pretend it's a red state, huh? Yeah, pretty, pretend, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. pretend it's Texas. Right. Uh, as you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the ranking member, uh, well, not the ranking member, the uh, majority leader in Congress, um, the majority whip in Congress mm-hmm. in the Senate is from Texas, the majority right. whip. Uh, the chair of Ways and Means in the House is from Texas. Um, I assure you that if... Do we just pretend it's Texas and behave the way we would behave for Texas? They'll get the uh, resources they merit. Uh, no doubt about it. Um, uh, it's that political power, and that's why uh, Puerto Rico was forgotten and to a large extent uh, still is today. Uh, well, Congressman, on the eve of what is going to be a very important week for you, and a very exciting week for you, uh, we thank you so much for taking the time uh, to come in uh, and just laying out exactly what's at stake here. Well, um, no, no, nothing, nothing more important. Nothing well, more I, I think so. Seventy percent plus of all Democrat, Democrats believe that he should be impeached. More than seven in ten, right. uh, and uh, about forty percent of all Americans think so. Well, so this will, is not out of the mainstream. No, you'll be stepping forward with that next week. Uh, we thank you again for your time here. We'll be looking forward to hearing more from you next week, Congressman Alvarez. The rest of the day is yours, folks. Enjoy it. Come back and this see us again tomorrow. This is the Bill Press Show.